Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. Six. Finding my way. All great odysseys start with a seemingly insurmountable challenge. My challenge, as a 17-year-old, was how, as a young blind woman, I was to learn how to navigate life, to live well, and be in the world. The problem was that I really had no idea how to do this, and there was no roadmap or set of accessible directions on how to approach my life. As if that was not enough, I soon discovered I had another huge and truly overwhelming challenge looming up before me. In fairy tales, there is often a bad fairy who places a curse on the newborn child at birth that is designed to derail their blessed destiny. Well, this is how I felt when I heard the appalling statistics facing blind women in New Zealand. Instead of being told, at this important juncture in my life, to spread my wings and fly, or that the world is my oyster, or some other similarly positive cliché, I was given the damning curse of low expectations. To my horror, I was told that statistically blind women in New Zealand were predicted to be undereducated, unemployed, likely to live alone, and to have poor health outcomes. I was now fundamentally framed up as a social and economic burden on society. A charity case. The clear message was for me to aim very, very low and to know my place in the world. I was terribly scarred by the thought I could be a burden and a cost to society. But no one was going to accuse me of not pulling my weight. I also refused outright to be told what I could or could not do, blind or sighted. I dug my Torian bull hooves in hard and something inside me simply said no. It just made no sense to me that I should be so disadvantaged simply because I could not see as well as other people. How could my loss of sight, or anyone else's for that matter, result in such predictions? Perhaps my utter refusal to accept imposed limitations was in part a response to the very effective Girls Can Do Anything campaign on television in the 1970s. Or was it perhaps the result of absorbing Miss Piggy's fierce independence and refusal to be told by anyone what she could or could not do? Or was this a result of witnessing my mother protest time and time again against social injustice? Or had I in fact inherited one of my father's traits? He too refused the curse of low expectations placed on him by a teacher who told him he would never become a vet because he was not clever enough. One thing was for certain, my hero's journey had begun. My great challenge was to carve out a different future and a different narrative for myself. The die had been cast. 
while powerful, entrenched, invisible dark forces sought to restrict and reduce me and my life as a blind woman into a statistic. My challenge was to slay those forces, find a way to triumph over evil, and lead a full, rich, and glorious life beyond imposed limitations. In any great odyssey, the hero is ultimately alone in their journey of discovery. I too felt very alone during those early years in Wellington. I had moved out of the wonderful Beeringer household when university started in 1988 and moved into student accommodation at Weir House. There was literally no kind of disability support at university for students like me at the time. Even the supposedly simple act of finding my classes and then trying to see where there was a spare seat was an overwhelming challenge some days. My great fear was that I would end up in the wrong class, trip down the stairs, or accidentally sit on someone. This might not be so bad if it was a handsome guy, but I could think of more dignified ways to meet people. I can only guess it was assumed, consciously or otherwise, by the university, that blind people would not or could not study. Most of the time at university, and in my social life, I felt like an imposter doing my best to pretend to be like everyone else. I pretended to be sighted. I did not use my white cane, I did not use my little telescope in class, and only in the privacy of my own room did I painstakingly try to use my magnifying equipment. I did not know any other blind people. I had no one to talk to who actually understood and could directly share in my experiences. The one time I sought support from a counsellor with the Blind Foundation, it did not go so well. I told her I was quite depressed. I was struggling with my study and life. I told her that I felt enormous frustration because I had this huge curiosity and a desperate desire to learn and grow, and yet I felt terribly thwarted from reaching my potential. I simply could not access the books, the articles and the material I needed to excel with my study. Her response, which I will never forget, was, well, perhaps you are just not that clever. Is it any wonder I soon stopped reaching out for help? I found myself becoming more and more self-reliant. My attempts to seek out with were not always working out well. Yet my determination was fierce. I did literally have blind faith. I was determined to live my life my way, and I refused to accept what the damning evidence or statistics said. Looking back, I'm not exactly sure what my logic was for picking English literature as my major at university, other than a lifelong love of reading. We had certainly been brought up in a house full of books. Mum had read all sorts of things to us as children, including epic magical tales, heroic Greek classics, and of course the magnificent Dr. Seuss. She also ensured we always had a diverse and rich supply of books throughout our teenage years as well. One thing her grandchildren can all also count on, whether they want it or not, is a steady supply of interesting and thought-provoking literature. To this day, Mum reads more books than any other person I know. Yes, even more than Bill Gates and his impressive reading list and world-famous briefcase of books. I think I imagined English literature would be more accessible to me than certain other subjects like science. I also felt confident I could do it reasonably well. However, once I moved to Wellington, I found I was struggling dreadfully to read anything. 
As predicted by my specialists, my eyesight had deteriorated further during my late teens. This was the typical trajectory for Stargards. There were very few audiobooks in New Zealand in the late 80s. There were certainly no digital e-files to download, and as I've explained, I did not know how to read Braille. The only option, if I were to succeed, was to think creatively and to improvise. Back in Palmerston North, in between night shifts as a nurse, Mum had started to read some of my novels onto audio cassette for me and to post them to Wellington. And Mum being Mum, as a narrator, she tended to add her own comments from time to time. Sometimes it was just her reflection on the content in the book, but other times this included swearing. I recall her doing this in the middle of the novel The Man Who Loved Children by Christina Stead, when she spilled her tray of tea all over herself in her bed, or as she called it, her office. Another challenge that was not so easily overcome was sight reading. It was common practice in the English department at Victoria for students to read sections of books or other texts we were studying out loud during tutorials. One lecturer seemed to experience great joy in mocking me every time it was my turn to read out loud. He would make a point of saying to the class, Oh, that's right, Minnie does not like to read out loud. Even though I had told him about my eyesight and difficulty reading, he never once took responsibility for the fact that his classes were structured in a way that made it impossible for me to participate. I could not see the words, so I had no chance ever of reading out loud. Throughout my childhood, I had studied speech and drama privately in after-school lessons. I had passed many exams, and much of what I had to do in those early years, when my sight was better, was sight reading. I actually really enjoyed this exercise and was quite competent at it. By the time I was at Victoria, the only thing that had changed was that I could no longer see the words on the page. But my desire to read out loud was very much still there. I understand now that this behaviour by my lecturer was very wrong and that I was being bullied. I can also see I was very, very hard on myself. I took my struggle with accessing information as if it were some personal failing on my part, as if I was simply not trying hard enough, rather than as a lack of services by the university. This added to the sense of humiliation and shame I was feeling about what I was seeing as my underperformance academically. Alongside English literature, I also took political studies. I would conscientiously turn up to all the lectures and tutorials. I knew that my best chance of passing was if I listened carefully to as much information as possible. And so learning to really listen became an essential and lifelong strategy for me. Back in my student accommodation at night, I would try my best to read the books with one of my handheld magnifying glasses. This meant trying to read pages and pages of text, one magnified word at a time, in very dim lamplight, and with no real detail vision left in my eyes. I did somehow manage to pass my assignments, but I was mortified when I found out that my new boyfriend, Peter Galvin, was the stepson of the head of political studies, Margaret Clark. It was even more mortifying when I had several formal lunches with the family, and my academic progress was discussed with everyone. However, these lunches were also entertaining, and quite an eye-opener into New Zealand politics in a very different way. Pete's father had been a well-known senior civil servant. In fact, he was Bernie Galvin, who was head of the Prime Minister's Department and Secretary of the Treasury in the 1980s. 
We would be regaled over lunch by outrageous and hilarious stories about the former Prime Minister Robert Muldoon and others in his caucus, the stories always involving large amounts of alcohol. Another one of my subjects at this time was Middle English. One day I bumped into an old school friend who had always been at the top of the class during high school. We had just had our end-of-year marks back, and I was too shy and worried to look at mine in front of her. But when I looked and saw I had achieved straight A's for that paper, I nearly ran after her to show her how well I had done. University was, of course, about much more than just study. It was also about socialising, going to parties, listening to bands, nightclubbing and meeting new people. My friends and I would go regularly to a nightclub called Claire's, where the resident band upstairs were the amazing six volts, which included a young Janet Roddick. While I loved going to hear bands and listening to the unique sound of the six volts, getting around at night in the dark was extremely difficult. With my lack of night vision, I was particularly blind in these situations. The combination of low light and then mirror balls with their flashing, pulsating lights made seeing almost impossible. Add dry ice to the equation, and it was an absolute killer. I would often just find a spot in the nightclub and stay put, because moving around or trying to find friends was simply too hard. My strategy, if you can call it that, was to wait for other people to come up to me and talk. Rarely the other way around. This required a huge amount of faith on my part that someone would, in fact, come and chat to me. I certainly could not rely on eye contact with anyone, no matter how close they were to me. A wonderful and precious part of my life at this time was the group of friends I made once I moved into a flat. There were eight of us, all in an amazing old house at 239 The Terrace, just down the road from Victoria. One friend in particular was and still is one of the kindest and most with people I know. Campbell was studying design at this time and was also a fantastic musician. I recall him always being there and without fuss supporting me in social situations in the most gracious and chivalrous way. I have a favourite memory of Campbell taking me out on the back of his motorbike. We would ride around Wellington together. Once I started to relax and no longer held on to his waist for grim death, I loved it. And I knew if I had better eyesight, I would absolutely own my own bike too. We also had fantastic parties with the best music. De La Soul, Madonna, etc. Cam would ramp up the incredible stereo and speakers. And, in the words of Prince, we would all go crazy, dancing into the wee small hours. Moving to Wellington and setting out on my own was also about getting work. Once university started, I found part-time work at a local cafe called Glossops on Willis Street. Although this was just before the National Minister Lockwood Smith introduced user-pays tertiary education, I still needed extra money to survive in Wellington. I had some basic waitressing skills that I had learnt for my after-school job in Palmy as a teenager. I had worked for a local Chinese restaurant, where I wore an attractive long brown nylon uniform with a zip up the front, just like the waitresses wore in American diners on TV. The restaurant was run by a very savvy Chinese woman who never missed a beat. I got the impression that some of her girls were not just waitressing, but had some other means for making money with special clients after hours. 
As the restaurant was so dark and I really could not see, I would dip my finger in the top of customers' coffee cups when filling up with filter coffee to make sure I had filled the cup to the correct level. It wasn't exactly hygienic, but it was another example of blind ingenuity and problem-solving in action. I had also tried working in retail, selling clothes, but this was too tricky for me. I simply could not see what was written on the price tags or see the clothing sizes or read the till. I realised that if I were to get work, I would need to find something I could do that did not rely heavily on fine vision. With waitressing, I was generally managing somehow to improvise enough to get by. One very memorable blind moment came when I was working as a kitchen hand slash waitress and so was also helping with basic food prep. We had a famous Black Forest cherry cake on the menu that the regulars loved. One day, we ran out in the middle of a busy lunch shift. I grabbed the pre-made chocolate sponge, sliced it into three layers, then grabbed what I believed to be black cherries before adding cream, kirsch and chocolate flake. A bemused customer came up to me and asked quite innocently, are there usually black olives in the black forest cake? It turns out that to a blind woman, black olives and black cherries are quite similar in appearance. OMG. The other time I found it challenging was working at night in low light. As I've said, I am night blind as well as having star guards. This meant I had very little usable night vision. On many an occasion, I picked up someone's wallet or camera, thinking I was clearing a used serviette from the table. I then had to awkwardly return it to the table before I was wrongly accused of kleptomania, or worse. It was also during this time that a friend and I decided to try to set up our own business. We dropped off homemade flyers into neighbouring houses and offered ourselves up to do odd jobs. We were surprisingly successful at acquiring work. However, when it turned out that our first job was to completely sand and then repaint the tiny, intricate lattice windows in a local woman's sunroom, I was initially quite concerned. Just how well would I be able to carry out this task with limited vision? Somehow we managed. And I think we had a reasonably happy customer by the end of the task, if not a future as painters. This experience definitely fueled the latent entrepreneur in me and reinforced the idea that in time, I might have more employment options if I were to create my own employment opportunities. However, it was to be some time before that would occur again. At the end of 1989, I successfully graduated with a degree in English Literature from Victoria University, had attained quite a bit of work experience, and had gone flatting with friends. I was all of 19 years old. Task one of my hero's journey was complete. So what on earth was the next challenge of my odyssey to be? I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Minnie B.